Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case they worked or that they lived through. Some are high profile, some you have never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Today's case has been in the headlines for decades because the crime is so outrageous and unbelievable. It was the subject of the Netflix documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight. Peacock's new TV drama called A Friend of the Family is based on this crime. We're talking about a 12-year-old Mormon girl named Jan Broberg, who was kidnapped twice by the same friend of the family, a pedophile who sexually assaulted her more than 200 times. He even forced her to marry him at the age of 12. And then at the age of 14, he kidnapped her again. But perhaps the most shocking part was how the girl's parents were manipulated by this madman. And to a degree, they enabled him and his access to their little girl. Jan Broberg, after working for years as an actress, um, she has dedicated her life now to helping survivors of sexual crimes. And Jan is joining us now. Jan, I thank you so much for coming on the program. We are blessed to have you. Oh, thank you so much. I can't believe I'm here. It's wonderful and exciting because I really, really do have in my core a desire to help others in their own survival, becoming thrivivors <laughs> instead survivors. of just surviving. <laughs> yeah, thrivivors. I like that word. So I like it too. I think you know. it's good and it's positive. And you know, yeah. Jan, the amazing thing is if if you I have not seen the Peacock series yet, but I I did watch um, abducted in plain sight this week, specifically in preparation for this, because you and your family gave such unbelievable access to the documentary makers to tell this story. And you were all very candid about many, many things within the family that, you know, many people wouldn't want public, but without sharing those pieces of the manipulation and the vulnerabilities 
I, it's the only way people might be able to have some understanding of how this happened to you. Um, you know, your your parents have gotten a lot of pushback from the public on this. And, you know, you, you and your mom in particular have just been so public. You have a, a new book out that's called The Jan Broberg Story, the true right. crime story of a young girl abducted and brainwashed by a friend of the family. And you wrote this with your mom. So, you know, you're continuing to talk about it, even though the public has to some degree been very, very tough on your parents. Yeah, it's been tough on me because I did not expect that. I felt like my parents, and of course, we aren't in the room. Each of our interviews for the documentary were done privately. And so we don't really know what the other person said or didn't say. But we did decide as a as a family that we were all ready to tell the story as honestly and fully as we could and to basically expose every mistake or every misstep so that maybe someone else would catch something that was happening in their home or in their neighborhood or their congregation from someone that they knew, because almost all predators are someone that you already know, you already trust. And many, many, in fact, I'd say almost 90% of the time you love them. There's someone in your family, your congregation, your community center, your sports team, your school. They're not scary strangers. And until we get that and we start to actually talk about it, how can we possibly, you know, change the numbers, you know, and and people are people. They're not numbers to me. But when it's two out of 10 and one out of 10 boys that are sexually abused by someone they know before the age of 18 right now in 2022, that is just unacceptable. It's unacceptable that the FBI reports that an active criminal pedophile will 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 perpetrate on 30 to 70 children throughout his or her lifetime. It's 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 horrific. And and on our um, regular podcast, you know, we cover many of these crimes because so many times the crimes escalate from the sexual abuse and the predatory behavior to murder or or it may be a case of self-defense, which becomes very complicated. And right. so we cover a lot of these cases and we try to focus a lot on the survivors and the survivors' families, you know, to understand not only the crime and the vulnerability, but also, you know, it's it it's you're all very brave to expose everything that happened, because, again, it 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 it's. It's harsh. It's harsh, you know, and, and um, it's not just what happened to you, but how your family was played. And and so let's talk a little bit about the crime so people can understand. Yes. And, and the conversation will go in a bunch of different ways. But basically, your family was friends with another family, the Birchtolds. And Robert Birchtold was obsessed with you. And this started in 1974. Um, and, and well, the families met, the families met in 19. 19- in 1971. Mm, okay. So we had almost a three-year relationship. So you don't get the timeline very clearly in the documentary. You don't realize we had done 
hundreds of activities with this family. They became our best friends. Their three oldest sons were the same age as myself and my two younger sisters. We would, you know, we'd go on a Saturday at 10 on our bikes to the park. And then we'd, you know, ride down to Bylow's to buy penny candy. And then we'd head over to the swimming hole. And then we'd, you know, by five o'clock, you'd come home and go, oh, we're hungry. But it was all of us, the, the whole group. We were best friends. And the father became best friends with my dad. They go to lunch. They're both businessmen. His wife, she taught me how to paint ceramics. And my sister, she she's one of the best cooks I've ever known. I even have recipe cards that she wrote out and her name's on them in my mom's recipe file right now today. I could come and show you a recipe card and it's her name on it and her writing of some of her famous recipes. Um, so it's like we were so close. It was as if, you know, if something were to happen to my parents, oh, we'll take your girls, we'll raise them, we'll love them as our own. Mm -hmm. Same to my parents, you know, um, we're like, well, we would do that for you. If something happened to you, we love your children. And this is how close we are. It's like a family member. It's yeah. like your brother or sister becoming, you know, so close to you. And my dad's an identical twin who also has a bevy of boys, you know. And so we were used to having this very tight knit kind of relationship with, with, you know, my, my uncle and my uncle Dick and Aunt Carolyn and my cousins, you know, four boys and a little girl. And then here's the Burstholds, four boys and a little girl. And just lives a block away, whereas, you know, my uncle and my cousins live a couple miles away. So at what point, Janet, what point, you know, because he did become obsessed with you. Bob Birchold became absolutely obsessed with you. Did you looking back now, do you recall when that obsession began? Because we're going to get to that kidnapping in 1974. I think it began right from the beginning. My FBI agent told me, he said, the day he showed up at your church with his wife and his five kids and, and met you guys sort of, I mean, you know, uh, and watched you sing a little song, a little primary song from the pulpit. Cause I did a little musical number that day. I was nine. And he said, I'm, I'm positive. He targeted you. He knew that he was on that path because I know now that there was a little girl right before me that was four years older than me. So I know, I know that I have the, the court recordings. I have, I have the, I have the proof. <laughs> there was somebody before me and probably more before her because oh. I have names of others, but I don't know their story, but the one right before me, I do. And, and lived in, she was in, in Pocatello. So he said, but he already had somebody. So he was playing the slow burn, the slow game with you and your family. But he thinks, and I believe looking back that he knew I was the target, and then he was going to do everything he could to calculatingly, manipulatively divide and conquer each member of my family, have a special relationship with each one, you know, flirtatious with this one. You're my best friend over here. I admire you. Charming. Let me do some service. Let me divide the girl's bedroom into three rooms instead of one big room. Let's put Jan at the very back of the hallway. <laughs> you know, her bedroom's right back there where there's two windows. You know, he knew he knew what he was planning to do, that he was going to eventually take me. I believe I, that he knew. I mean, honestly, if you all, if you haven't had a chance to see this or the Peacock special, uh, it it 
really, it's the way that it tells the story entirely that you just sit there and you're just like, I can't believe this is happening. And I can't believe this family is providing this level of access. So we'll only be able to touch on some of this because we want to talk about the work that you're doing with your foundation. Um, But in 1974, apparently he offered to drive you to your horseback riding lesson. So every, you know, no one thought that was weird. And he'd taken me horseback riding because he had, you know, he owned a furniture store. You know, his pictures in the paper. He's the new business man in town. He's he's revered. Everybody loves him by this point, you know, and he's become a very close friend of our family. He takes all the kids and goes, we go to science fiction movies or we do a movie night and we're watching Planet of the Apes and Lost in Space and Star Trek on TV and Bewitched and I Dream of Genie. And these are our shows, you know, and he's got this master plan that he's going to plant all of these seeds along this you know, along with all the other kids and along with my mom and dad telling stories about UFO sightings. And he's not talking to me directly. It's just in the fabric of how he was planning this perfect crime. So I had been with him and his oldest son. We had gone to uh, this place out, you know, a ways out of town where he had a client that he would take furniture to or was measuring walls or something. And they had a ranch. And so he said, I, I, I have to go out there. I'll take Jan and give her another riding lesson, um, which I loved horses. And I was so excited to go again. And um, my, you know, dad said, no, mom said, oh, well, okay, but have her back before dinner because it's a school night and her dad doesn't want her to go. And my dad had started kind of pulling away because he felt like we spent too much time with the family, but there was no, there were no signs. So, so when you say he was obsessed with me, he was, but it was in secret. It was behind the scenes. It was not like he was so careful in how he, how he would do all of those things. So he picks me up from my piano lesson to take me out there and gives me my allergy pill. But of course he's, he's changed it to some kind of sleeping medic medicine. I take it and I go into a deep sleep. And the next thing I know, I wake up in the back of a moving motorhome strapped to a bed by my wrists and my feet, feet and ankles and a high pitched monotone voice is playing in my ear and it wakes me up. And it's this high staccato ethereal alien sounding voice, like what you would have seen on one of the TV shows that we watched or one of the science fiction movies that we went to. And all that premeditative planning, all that grooming that had taken place for those two and a half years prior to waking up restrained alone as a young 12 year old, very, very small little girl. I didn't hit maturity till I was 17. Um, And that voice, female companion, it is time for your mission to begin. That woke me up out of that deep drug induced sleep was so real and so scary that I absolutely, it took no time for him to quote unquote brainwash me because all the grooming had already happened. And this voice, Jan, this voice was coming out of something like a tape recorder. Is that it? Yeah, but it wasn't a tape recorder. So we can understand. Like a speaker, like a little speaker kind of looking boxy thing. Yeah. And I could follow the cord up the, up the side of the motorhome. I could see the cord, but I couldn't see where it went, like went into the ceiling. But it was a uh-huh. very odd looking thing to me. I didn't, I'd never seen one quite like that, but it had the little holes like a speaker. Okay. So this voice is talking to you and telling you things. Now, mm-hmm. how, where is Bob? Is he, have you seen him yet? 
nope, I have no idea. I don't know how these people took me. How come I'm in this motor home? There's a partition between the front of the motor home and the where the back bedroom and the bathroom and the little mini cooler are. And because I was drugged and in and out of sleep, there would be times when over this next about 48 hours where I would wake up and my restraints were off and the little voice would say, you can go to the bathroom now and you can find something to eat. We have all your favorite foods. (laughs) Like we've been watching you since you were born, you know, all that stuff, which was just more terrifying for me. But of course I needed food and I needed to go to the bathroom. And so I would, and then I'd lay back down. And the next time I'd wake up, I was restrained again. So the food was drugged. I was drugged. I was in and out of this very deep sleep with this voice all the time going and going about, I would say probably around two days into this nightmare, this terrifying. I've never been alone in my life. I've, I've, I've lived in Camelot my whole childhood, even with all the birch told years, we, it was so much fun. My, my parents were so open and we, we talked about everything around the dinner table, but you know, everything that 10 and 11 and 12 year olds talk about my parents listened. We, we had no reason to be scared. We had a beautiful family life. This was Jan, this was psychological warfare. I mean, this, this is absolutely getting you off balance plus you're medicated and the insanity when you think about it of this creature pretending to be an alien instructing you on what you have to do, which is insane because this, this alien voice right? is telling you that you're going to have to have sex and that you're going to have to have a baby or what is it? Your sister will go blind, your father will die and you will vaporize. Yes, exactly. And it didn't start out like that wasn't the very first, those things, those things happened over time. Like they, they were just saying I was very special and I had a very special mission. They were setting me up as this important person that I was half alien and half human and that they've been watching me. And, and then when, when about 48 hours of this kind of languaging and messaging had come through, they were like, and there's a male companion and they've been calling me female companion. And we want you to go to the front of the motorhome, and there you will find the male companion. You must tell him how special you are and that you have a mission to perform and you need the male companion. I don't even know what it means yet. I don't even get it. All I know is they told me to get up and go find the male companion. The partition is gone. I go to the front of the motorhome and on the sofa, the little sofa, there's B covered in blood. This guy's like my second father. He's like my favorite. When you say B, you refer to him as B, but most of us will know that he is Bob Birchold. Birchold. Yeah. Birchold. So there's Birchtold on this couch and covered in blood. And, and I think he's dead. And here's little 12 year old, you know, this little four foot, you know, this little tiny, you know, shaking hand, this grown man and saying, B, B, you have to wake up and, and are you okay? And, and you're bleeding and, you know, trying to wake him up for me, it's a familiar face. It's someone that loves me. He's not scary. He's a familiar face. He's set up to be that person. And he comes to, and he says, Oh, Dolly called me Dolly. Dolly, what happened? We were, we were heading out to go horseback riding. And all of a sudden I saw this white light and, and then the car started to shake and, Oh, I'm bleeding. And, Oh, I think I must've smashed the window. I was trying to, I was trying, I remember I was trying to pull you away from them. And, and, and I don't know what happened next. And so I start telling him what happened next. We've been taken. 
We've been taken by these aliens. They say I'm half alien and half human and that you're the male companion and I'm the female companion. I don't even know what I'm saying yet. Mm-hmm. And he just plays into it and starts to, you know, and I go and get a wash rag from the sink and dress his wounds and, you know, just like sweet little 12-year-old Jan Wood. <laughs> and he starts to tell me, oh, that's what it was. Oh my goodness. I've always known they were real, but I wouldn't ever have imagined that you were part alien. What is the special mission? I'm like, I'm not sure. I think something to do with saving their planet, but I don't know to have a baby or something, but I can't have a baby. I'm just little. I, you know, well, you're alien though. If you're alien, maybe it's different for you. So this is how the story unfolds. This is how the abuse can now begin because he's he's a victim too. And now everybody, we have to do everything that, that they say so that they don't vaporize us, body he's and soul. He's a freaking lunatic. I mean, this man oh, yeah. is a freaking lunatic besides being a monster and everything else. You know, yeah. the the fact is you're 12 years old And this entire scenario has been set up with things that should make you believe that it's true. And therefore you buy into it. You're completely manipulated. You're frightened. You're away from your family. How long, how long are, are you in this abduction, this first abduction? Well, the actual days are 42 days. How is this possible? He gets us over the border of Mexico. We're deep down into Mexico. He's trying to get me to South America. I know this now, of course, but then it was just moving south and and dressed me up like a boy to get across the border, had the birth certificate of his son, (gasps) his second oldest son. That's what he used. So he used his own children as pawns. It's just really, it's really sickening, to be honest. (laughs) And um, he gets me into Mexico and, and we move around, you know, we'll be in a trailer park for a week or 10 days or, and then the one that we were at the longest was in Mazatlan, Mexico. And, um, I even made friends with one of the little ladies who taught me to play cribbage next door. She had no idea what was really happening. She thought I was his daughter. And and anyway, the the federales working with the FBI is they found us there and they in the middle of the night or early morning stormed the motor home, grabbed us both, put us in a in a vehicle and took us to a prison. And they put me in a little room where the little mice were running around the perimeters and back under the baseboards into the wall. And I didn't speak Spanish at the time. And, and um, nobody talked to me until somebody came, a guard came to take me to, to meet with him who was in this, you know, dingy, you know, kind of, Mexican jail. Yeah. Jail. Yeah. It was very scary. He gave the, he bribed the guard with his um, wedding ring. He gave him his. Wait, 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 who did Birch told Mm-hmm. And oh, then they so brought he, me to him. Oh, no way. On top yeah. of everything else, in the middle of all this, you have been you've been freed, you know, freed yet captured. And yet he's still manipulating the system and getting access to you. Yeah. Before my parents could show up or whatever was else was going to happen. I was taken down to him and he said, oh, the the aliens in the box had names. You know, you personalize everything because then then you. Well, I don't need to go into it, but anyway, you put, that's a very important thing that manipulators do. They personalize every part of the brainwashing. So Zeta and Zethra, the two aliens that would talk on the, on the box, box, had come to him and talked and told him that if I 
if we talked about any of the four things that we'd both be vaporized. And then Susan, my little sister would be taken because she also, my littlest sister was half alien and half human. And of course the, the, my middle sister, Karen, who was already developing, you know, when she was at 10, um, So, you know, he wasn't interested in her in the same way, but there were threats against her that she would go blind if I didn't do this, or if I talked to a boy, or if I had a relationship with my father, he would be removed, he would be killed. You know, it was just a threat after threat. And he said, so we can talk about the mission, which was to have the baby. So the mission and the baby stuff, how, you know, we're trying to have this baby to save this dying planet. So we can't talk about the aliens. That's number three. And then we can't talk about the relaxing drugs and pills, the relaxing, the things that help you sleep. And so, I never did because I thought they were watching me all the time, 100% oh my God. for the next so, four years of my life. And, and so while you're, you're, you're abducted and you're on this odyssey, which is horrific, your parents delay calling the authorities because you don't show up from home because uh, Bob's wife apparently asks your parents to hold off She doesn't just ask my parents. She's sitting in their house. She wants to know where he is, too. And she's like, well, of course, they must have been in a car accident. My parents don't think I've been kidnapped. This guy is their best friend. This is like you imagining your brother who took your kids to go to some sporting event who didn't show up. What was what would be the first thing that you would think? You would think, oh, there's been an accident or what, you know. And and we knew or my parents knew because they had talked about it with with B, with Birchtold and with his wife about his mood swings and his depression and how sometimes he would go off the rails a little bit. And, you know, they, they had had but, you know, they were concerned about him as friends and certainly never would it cross their mind that he was, you know, the only word they knew was child molester. They had no idea what a pedophile was. Nobody knew that word. Even the FBI agent said he had to kind of look it up, but he said, it's sort of like a child molester, I think, you know, and, or like they're attracted to kids. He goes, I'll, I'll, I'll get more, you know, solid information about what that actually is. But my parents are like, no, of course not. He has five kids of his own. No, he's not that. Like no, there had to be, friend. there had to be a reasonable explanation. Something had so happened. They right? did call the police after okay. it got really late. I mean, it, it's, it's misleading in the documentary because they Thank did you. not wait <laughs> to call. Thank they you. did call the police, but they asked, have there been any reports? We, you know, and, and Gail is there, his wife is sitting there and they're, they've called the police and, and asking, has there been a car? accident or anything reported no we don't have anything to report by the very next day my mother's brother-in-law his anyway his brother was the sheriff of that county that out where he was supposedly taking me horseback riding and he called and said we did find a car with the window smashed out and they eventually you know put the pieces together that that was his car and Um, but before they could do that, mom had called the office of the FBI in Pocatello, but it was closed. It was already Friday night and they were closed. And it said, if you want to call Butte, Montana for an emergency, you can call this number and Gail's there, my dad, and they're all looking at Gail and she's like, oh, please don't call them. We know that he would never hurt her. He loves your family and your kids. And, you know, and they both agree. Well, yeah, we don't think that, but we got to figure out what's happened. I mean, you know, almost two days in. And so they don't call the FBI, but then by the, by Monday, so he took me on a Thursday. 
So we've had Thursday night and Friday, and then there's been Saturday and Sunday where they did call the police department again. They filed a formal report on Saturday. So they did call places, but it wasn't until Monday that the FBI actually got involved and showed up. And um, Gail was mortified and she was like, my husband would never hurt. You know, he's a father. He has five children. You know, we they, never would he hurt. Do you think she child. knew? You think, you she know, knew? I don't think she knew in the way that I believe she knew later okay. <laughs> at this point. Okay. okay. I believe that they had moved around enough. And I know I know absolutely for a fact she knew that he had done something with another girl because there is a there is a report of that 10 months before my kidnapping. Mm. Um, so I know that she knew something was wrong. And I do know that they tried to adopt a 10 year old from Mexico before I was taken. Oh, Lord, no. Yeah. yeah. And they had both gone there with letters of recommendation from people in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like even the guy that's on the documentary, Cor Hoffman, our yeah, other yeah. dear friend, he mm-hmm. wrote them a letter of recommendation. Like these are the nicest people. They just want to help. And here's a letter of recommendation why they would be great adoptive parents. They go to Mexico to get this girl that they had all lined up. And then the mother just couldn't let her go, even though they were dirt poor. She just was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't let her go. Now, there's a reference here where he he married you in Mexico and then he asked Mm -hmm. your parents for permission to marry you. And this all was a way of like, I guess, making sure that the charges would not be, you know, held that that hard on him. I don't know if if I'm making any sense. Because this is and he had an answer for everything, like every master manipulator. They have an answer for everyone and everything. So it's going to be a different answer to my mom than my dad, to his wife, than to the FBI agent, to the police or whoever. He has a different answer for everything. But here's the thing he said. I was not present, but he paid someone to marry Robert Birch told in Jam Broberg on paper, and then he gave me a ring. He said, we have been married. Here's the paper that says we're married. And he said, this is the only way that we'll be able to go back to the United States. Otherwise, I'm going to get locked up and you're going to get a new male companion. You don't want that, do you? Oh my God, you're 12 years old. I'm 12 years old. He's been raping me for a month. I mean... Uh, no, I don't want somebody I don't know. I don't want I don't want to go through this horror again. So that's the explanation to me. What does he say basically to my mom or to his brother that he sa- that he said this to? He said, well, if they would just let me marry Jan just as a in, on paper thing, then I can come home legally. But no, instead, they get the FBI involved. They know I would never marry. You know, I would never hurt this kid. She's driving me crazy. This is what he says to his brother. So his brother communicates this. They've got it on tape on the FBI, you know, phone records. And that's the story. That's what he wants to tell my mom. And then after I'm found and I'm brought home and stuff, he's calling my mom. My dad never let him back in his life. And that's a little misleading because you don't get the timeline, but my dad never let him back in the door. My dad was like, you, we cannot have a relationship with this family. This is sad for our girls there because we were best friends with their kids. When, when you're returned back to the United States mm-hmm. and I know you're interviewed by the authorities, Jan, mm-hmm. did you ever tell them that he had sexually assaulted you? Oh, oh no. I did not say the four things. I did not want to be vaporized. I never told them about the mission or the baby stuff. 
I never said anything about. But the they must abuse. have suspected because no, no. Right. So they court ordered me to go to a doctor and be examined. And because I'm telling the doctor the same thing, like, this is gross. Why would you do this? I've he didn't do anything. He's like my dad. You know, I, you know, all of that. And because he'd been so careful, the hymen was still intact, you know, so we're not talking a violent rape, like forced entry into this, you know, this tiny little <sighs> girl, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be violent. It's still rape. Um, And so uh, that, that small bit of penetration that was happening was just enough for him, but not enough for him to get caught. And of course, back in 1974, we don't have, you know, the instruments and the kinds of, you know, we don't have a coposcope. We don't have all the things that now they would know that there was some kind of trauma. And they were like, yeah, I think she's telling the truth. It looks like she's fine. And she's saying she's fine. And then the court ordered me to go to a psychiatrist. I never said five words to him. And no, I'm not going to tell those four things. Are you kidding? And and have them take my sister, vaporize me and make my other sister blind and maybe kill my dad. No way. Uh, what psychological, t- psychological torture, torture, yeah. torture, torture for you. Yeah. And so does he ever get charged with anything? Uh, yes, he does. Um, eventually, he is charged with kidnapping, and he does. Um, a- and he does eventually plead that that okay, yes, I took her without permission. I mean, it was like this. I can't remember what the actual what it was called. So, so eventually, this happens. You know, way way people don't get that either. I guess you tell true crime stories all the time, but like we're talking, the guy comes back. To you know, he, the bail is posted. He comes back to the United States. He's not in jail. He's at his house, a block away from us. He comes to church with his family again. All the people in our congregation are like, "Well, you're not going to press charges, are you?" I mean, what will Gail do? She doesn't work. How, I mean, this is the '70s. She's a stay-at-home mom, like my mom, and has no career. And how will they they eat? And you you, I mean, he didn't hurt her. That's that's so common. This is why these perpetrators get away with it and they're roaming around free and they're in your family and everybody's family or congregation or community Mm -hmm. center. So that's what they're saying. My parents are back and forth like, do we press charges? And my dad's like, yes. And my mom's like, no. And then my dad had had the masturbation experience, you know, spoiler alert. (laughs) <laughs> let's yeah, let, okay. let's tackle that because I think it's yeah. very important. Um, and that's and before the kidnappings. So the first kidnapping. We talked about how he manipulated and and was really targeting your family, you and and each of your parents. Yes. So um, this part of the documentary, it's just excruciating. Mm-hmm. Honestly, to hear your father describe this, yeah. they had a sexual encounter, well, uh, masturbation. Yes. In a car. And okay. um, basically a hand job and might as well just say the truth. So everybody can, you know, they don't right. have to imagine. <laughs> okay. And, so, so this happens uh-huh. and before the know, kidnapping, before the kidnapping before, and it is at the direction and the request and the manipulation of, of Birchfield. Birchfield. and your father's involved. They have a sexual yeah. encounter yep. and. Uh, in a car, and then this will be used as blackmail, right? That exactly. It, that he will tell the world what your father has done. Yes. 
unless they don't sign some legal papers that basically it's like a plea deal. But it's not just that threat for though for them to sign those papers when they went to talk to his attorney. My parents don't have an attorney. This is another thing that I think people don't get when they watch the documentary. They're like, why would they go talk to his attorney? And I'm like, because they don't have one. They've never been in a courtroom. My parents have never had a speeding ticket. If if, you're, if somebody's attorney calls and said, we can make this go away and we can just solve this out of court, your daughter won't have to be dragged through the mud. And then you show up to talk to that attorney. And then she says, and by the way, if you don't sign the papers, then we're going to make a case that you're unfit parents. and We're going to take your children away from you. And we're going to tell about what happened with Bob and Birch told in the car. And my mom's like, what? And my dad's like, oh, you know, I told you that this thing happened, but he's never gone into detail explicitly with my mom. And and my mom's like, well, okay, well, let's sign the papers. You know, we we want it to go away. And the papers were basically a signed affidavit that said that he had that he had he had permission. He hadn't kidnapped you. Therefore, it made it very difficult for the authorities to prosecute him with this. And they obtained that. He obtained that. The monster obtained that by threatening blackmail. Right. On on your now had he now the other thing is he was also manipulating your mother and flirting with her had the affair with all her begun th- yet? no the affair hadn't happened yet and he had been doing that from the beginning from almost the day he met my mom he started the 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 little looks and the flirtation and the you know oh my word and and it would even say to my dad your wife she's so amazing can she you know just help my wife be a little more attractive because you're she dresses so nice and, and it was true my mother I mean he was like it was just you just can't imagine the lengths that he went to. Can I finish the the affidavit story Absolutely, though? Because it's really yes. important. It's not yes. in the documentary. Yes. They also retracted their signatures from the affidavits three days later. And there's an article in the newspaper, but that's not in the documentary where it says Broberg's retract affidavits. They they want the case to go forward, you know, of kidnapping. So that's why it went forward. So that's not oh. in there. So people get this idea that they that they were trying to protect themselves and not protect me. And that just wasn't true. Oh, that's um, a very big point, Jan. Yeah, it's a big deal. It so. is a big deal. So so your parents then decide, look, no way. This is whatever the consequences. You must right. prosecute him. And so right. what happens? So they so the case goes forward. He gets he does. But it takes a year and a half. Yes. Okay, it takes time. And in the meantime, he's still up the street at church. His kids and us still want to play with each other, even though I'm brainwashed and I'm riding my bike to a phone booth because I got to meet up with with B because of the mission. And the, the voice box shows up in my bedroom, my way in the back bedroom that he had created before he kidnapped me, which I'm sure he wired and made sure it was in the quietest dark you know deepest part of the home so that he could sneak in there put the box in there have it start have me wake up in the middle of the night to those alien voices as you know as a 12 year old i'm still just 12 i was just barely 12 when he kidnapped me and and here's this voice now in my room and then three minutes later here's birch told in the doorway of my bedroom in his socks and there he is so he continued to sexually assault you yes in your home in between in my home, in the bedroom that he built for me and furnished with furniture from his furniture store. And no one knew this. Oh, no, nobody knew. Oh, this. my Lord. This is just it really is. It is unbelievable. I mean, it yeah. honestly, had you not lived it, 
it is unbelievable. So so this goes on and then he and then he finally it- gets convicted of the crime of kidnapping. But uh-huh. because of time served and because of good behavior and because he's got a family or for whatever all the reasons are that the judge decided that the five year sentence was reduced to 45 days. And then because he had spent 30 days in the jail in Mexico, he was only required to serve 15 days in jail. <sighs> He doesn't serve those 15 days until he's kidnapped me the second time. What are the chances that you could be kidnapped twice? So now you're 14 years old. And this part of yep. the story, this one, this Jan, I, you're 14 years old. <laughs> he kidnaps you and he hides you like in a place like this part to me. Is it true that he enrolled you in a Pasadena Catholic Girls school, Flint Ridge Sacred Heart Academy. Look it up. Yep. He enrolls you in this school under a different name. He convinces Mm -hmm. the nuns that he's a CIA agent. Your mother is dead and Uh they must take care of you. Yep. And guess what? He leaves so he can go serve his 15 days in jail and say, I didn't take her. I've been in jail. I don't know why she ran away. She can't stand her parents. Now she wants to marry me. Now she actually wants to marry me. And so I think he's just let us get married. I mean, now he's to that point. So in between these two kidnappings, while he's awaiting trial, while the case is happening, while he's still going to church with his wife and his kids, where we go to church, while us kids are still begging, please, can we be friends with the Birchtolds? They're our best friends. And when they finally move to Ogden, which is about two hours away from Pocatello, when they finally move, because his wife, you know, it's just so much pressure. They move and he moves. He's still in touch. He's still coming into my bedroom. He's still making these secret trips back and forth. All during that time in those first six months, in the first six months after the first kidnapping. So again, he's running around. He's there. He's calling my mom every day. Marianne, please just let me tell you what happened. Marianne, you know that the person that I'm in love with is you, but you're so dedicated to Bob. Why don't you just bring the girls and I'll get you an apartment down here in Salt Lake where I'm living? Because Gail and I are getting divorced. Marianne, please come and talk to me. Please let me tell you. Please let me give you the whole details of why I took Jan and how I was having this depressive manic break and I just started driving. And then all of a sudden I ended up over the border. And then you guys called the FBI. It's your fault. I would have come home the next day, but I couldn't because now the FBI is involved. Why would you do that to me? Let me tell you why. Now the whole story to my mother is this whole other story. So she eventually agrees to go meet with him and he has a motorhome, lures her into the, you know, where he is, gives her every excuse, uses seven different tactics or so uh, of why, why he did it and how watching me do the dishes at the motorhome sink just made him think of her, my mom, mm-hmm. and how much, and how in love I am with you. I mean, she looks so much like you and she acts like you and she has the same sweetness and the same goodness and the same kind of fire and the, you know, passion and the, but it's you, Marianne, that I want. And I really wish that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she ends up sleeping with him a, a maybe half a dozen times over the next eight months. She meets with him about eight or 10 times, but she said it was not like every time. It was like, she remembers four times in particular, but we kind of think from the court records of what she said and what she remembers, it was probably five or six times, but she met with him about eight or nine times. And why that. is this, why is this important to the manip- besides it's very bizarre, you yeah. know, why is this important to the manipulation and to getting to you? Well, because if he can convince my mother 
if he can convince my mother who, who now she's torn between, I love my girls. I love Bob, my husband, my dad, but I'm so attracted to this man. I think I'm in love with him as well, or I'm in love with him in this other way. If she, if he, if she can actually get there to the point where she decides, okay, I could leave my marriage and bring my three daughters. Then he has access to all three of us. Uh. I mean, that's how they work. The next little girl after me, what did he do? He met her mom first oh. and then he and, and, and charmed her mom and then started on her nine-year-old daughter. And I've interviewed her, the girl after me, right after me, oh. the next victim. I've interviewed that little girl and she'll be in the Peacock documentary that comes out uh, next week after the last episode of the series drops tomorrow night. This is on the 15th. And you get to see me meeting her, the girl that was right after me that he identified when he still wasn't done with me, but he'd already targeted the next one and her okay. mother. And that's how that's how predators operate. And the reason my parents were willing to tell these stories was yes. because they know this is how predators operate now. You know, this many years later, now they've learned all these things. My mother's become a social worker. She places children in good foster homes. She does adoptions for people. You know, she's gone back to school and gotten her degree as a social worker. And and now we know all these things. We're like, we have to tell the whole story because people don't realize the lengths that a that a predator goes to and how they work that's why you don't see them coming oh my god you think they love you <laughs> okay so at 14 he abducts you again yep. and he puts you he squirrels you away at this girl's school and mm -hmm. the authorities are are watching him but they can't find you right Right. So, and they can't and they can't often even even follow him. He's a master of disguise and manipulation. He would dress up. He would disguise himself. He'd get on a plane. He'd get a different car. He'd drive there, or fly there under these assumed names. I mean, he was that guy that's like, catch me if you can. He and, really was. And so how long does this second four, kidnapping last? Almost four months. I, I was home right before Thanksgiving. So August, September, October and part of November. How are you rescued? This time, my parents hired a private investigator because they had listed me as a runaway because I had I had packed a backpack at his, you know, he told me what to do. They want you to pack a backpack and then write this note. And so he he had the note that I was supposed to write in my own handwriting. And so I wrote it exactly like the note said. And, you know, my mother's name was spelled wrong and certain words were spelled wrong. And I was a straight A student. <laughs> But I wrote it the way that that he had it written down for me and left the note and then left the backpack, didn't take it and then disappeared out my bedroom window, which is why he put me in that downstairs bedroom because I had two upper windows and he built me a hanging chair that was this velvet covered hanging chair that I could get up on and reach the window. It's just it's insane. The planning that went in and the calculation and manipulation that that he the extreme I mean, how much forethought? How are you rescued the second time? How are you found? The private investigator, a lot yeah. working with our our FBI agent Pete Welch, who really didn't have the full support of the FBI because I was listed as a runaway. Um, but he was such a dear friend and loved my parents and knew that something was definitely wrong with this man, but didn't know what because I wasn't talking. He got involved and kind of helped with that. And they finally got the FBI to put tape recorders on several phones. And it was a phone call that I made um, uh, to my sisters mm. and uh, th they could tell by the, the coins that went into 
the payphone, however they do that. And um, that was that was uh, when they figured out a, a, a geographical area. And it was really my mother and my father who would who were just doing investigating on their own. I mean, they would dress up and whatever that my mom started calling numbers from flights like like she'd find phone numbers and where is he flying to or is his name on there? And somehow she ended up calling for, uh, a bunch of girls boarding schools in Southern California. And she never called that one, but she oh. called Marymount. Marymount. Yeah. yeah loyal. That yeah, was, she said, mm-hmm. I know she's in a boarding school. My mother just had this like flood of like a spiritual experience like that came over her when that woman answered and she just went, this is where she is. She's in a boarding school and she'd written hundreds of letters. Her and my dad had mailed them. And back in the day, you know, you had to mail the letter and different schools. Right. There was no internet. There were no cell phones, people. Right. Right. We have to give context to this. So that's how they narrowed it down to that school. Yep. And the private investigator and George Shell are one of our um, also dear friends um, from the police department, the, the, is that called the district attorney's office or something? Anyway, they, Mm -hmm. prosecutor's office, they came out and got me, but it, it was not their first visit to the school. The nuns had protected me. They they had come more than one time. And no. they finally they finally brought enough information, enough newspaper clippings, enough stuff. And they went, okay, she's here. So is he really this bad guy? Is that, I mean, but it took more than one visit, more than one time of them coming. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That is unbelievable. Yeah. Jan, what a life you have lived. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I still believe the brainwashing, the aliens were watching me for another until my 16th birthday. So another almost two years, a good year and a half before I started to question things. And what happened to him? Uh, let's see. That time he pled mental defect and he had to serve. He ended up, they thought he was going to be put in a facility for a long time. And he ended up only there for three months. And then everybody was like, oh, he's fine. He's good. He's out three months in a mental facility. And guess where he met the next victim's mother? No. She was the intake. intake. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> okay. So he comes out. You go on with your life. It takes you a very long time to process what truly happened. Jan, at what age did you actually realize all of it was a lie? So around my 16th birthday, I I had begged my parents to let me go to a theater camp. And it was a five-week camp. It was about three hours from our house. And they they let me go because they, even though I wasn't talking still, I was like a robot. I wasn't I, you know, I'd gone from being this loving child with my dad to never touching him, never talking to him, you know, all the rules. I'm still following all the rules, but they let me go to a theater camp. Thank God. And at that theater camp, a boy who I knew liked me that I wouldn't let him other than when we had a scene in the play, I avoided him. One day we're at the bowling alley where there's an ice cream bar and he's in front of me and I'm right behind him in the line of all of us cast members, us kids, students. I'm, you know, that's the summer of my 16th birthday. And he buys my ice cream. He pays for it. I run back to my dorm room and I'm just bawling. I know Karen's going to be blind. Like something horrible is going to happen now. My mom and dad called me every night at the theater camp. So at the right time, they called again 
and I answer my little dorm phone and my mom and dad, you know, they're both there. And is Susan there? Karen's there. Yes, everybody's here. But the dogs are a little bit sick. We had to take them to the vet. I think I might have fed them. I think they got a little food poisoning. Well, I flip out. Oh, my gosh. No, no, not the dogs. You know, not Tiffy and Bandit. And and my mom was like, no, they're going to be okay. But I'm just beside myself. So we finished the call. My mom calls me the next morning, which is not typical, but she had that gut feeling. I got to call her and tell her the dogs are okay before she gets off on her day with her theater camp and all her classes and rehearsals. And so she calls me early the next morning and I answer the phone and she says, Hey, I just want you to know the dogs are doing fine. They're running around. They're acting like normal. They're going to be fine. You just were so upset. I wanted you to know. At that moment, I call it the ice cream miracle. (laughs) At that moment, it's been almost, you know, it's almost four years since the first kidnapping when I woke up and my whole life changed in the back of that motorhome to that voice. And I, I had this fleeting five second thought, oh my gosh, the dogs are okay. Karen's not blind. Susan's home. Dad's not dead is this real? Because I had a plan. I had planned that because I was turning 16 and I was supposed to have the baby by the time I was 16. Well, that hadn't happened yet. I was supposed to meet up with Birchtold at this, at this drama camp, but I could never find a time when I was not with a a buddy, you know, buddy system. And and I I couldn't just disappear. So it never happened. And he was losing interest anyway, because he'd already found his next victim. He was already brainwashing that mom and starting on that girl. So he was losing interest. Of course, this is all hindsight, but so I hadn't heard from him. I had that thought. My next thought was, okay, I'm just kidding. I know you're there. I know you're watching me. I know you can read my mind. Please don't hurt my family. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Just don't take Susan. Don't hurt Karen. That's the next thought that, that a brainwashed mind has, but it was enough of a thought that when I got home, I'd had, then I had my 16th birthday and again, nothing happened. Right. You hadn't had the baby and you were still alive and they were well. Right. So about the time school started in mid-August and I, July 31st is my birthday. I had had another couple of weeks home from, you know, the theater camp, the first week of August, we did our show. I'm testing the waters now, every opportunity I have, what can I do that wouldn't be too bad, but oh, okay, I'll talk to a boy at school. Oh, maybe I'll go to the sock hop. Maybe I can do this or that. You know, maybe I'll actually give my dad a hug. And as I test the waters, I don't see anything happening. And he's kind of gone. He's kind of disappeared. I haven't heard from him for a while. I accept a dance. I accept an invitation to a dance with a boy (laughs) and a group of friends. We all have dates. There's four couples, I think, and we're all friends and we're going to go to a dance. And I, I remember, this is emotional for me. I remember coming home from that dance. First one I'd ever been to. As a 16 year old and my dad had fallen asleep in his lazy boy. He was waiting up for me. And I came through the door and I, and he woke up heard the door. Oh, Jenny, how was the dance? You know, and he'd of course made a corsage for me and gave that to the boy who was taking me to the dance because my dad's a florist, you know, and, and I was still wearing it. I said, Oh, it was really fun, dad. And I went over with 
I was almost shaking with, you know, trepidation, but I went over and I sat on the arm of the lazy boy and talked to my dad, like for the first time in so many years, who I loved so much. And as I talked to him and he asked me questions about the dance and I told him about the boy and I didn't really, you know, he was okay, but you know, I, whatever, you know, but he's like, well, I'm just so glad you're home and that you had a good time. And I love you. And I said, I love you too, dad. And I hadn't said those words for years to my dad. And then I walked back because I didn't sleep downstairs anymore. It was too scary. I would not sleep in my bedroom down there anymore. So I slept in the guest room that was up down the hallway from my mom and dad's room and then Susan's room and then that guest room. And I went back there and I'm in my gunny sack dress and I lay on top of the bed, kick my shoes off and I'm staring at the ceiling and I'm like, I don't think this is real. I think, I think that he lied to me. I think this is made up. I think, what do I do now? What do I do? And then it still took some more time. And it really wasn't until my sister, Karen, and my best friend, Caroline, one evening, shortly after this, but, you know, it was still days after we're talking to me and they said, Jan, and Caroline especially would press the hard questions. Jan, you have to tell me what he, what he did. And I just, my sister, Karen described it as one of the scariest experiences of her life was she was 14 and I was 16 and watching me claw the floor, the shag carpet with my fingernails and just, just, she said it was just like you were possessed or something was coming out of you and you could, you'd just say things and then you just gasp and, you know, claw at the carpet and, and just be like, I, you know, I I'm trying to get it out. And then Caroline's and Karen both said, if you don't go tell mom and dad, we're going to go tell them. And I was like, no, no, I'll tell them. I'll tell them. And I never really explicitly talked about the sexual abuse. I just said the icky stuff I don't want to talk about. And then I told them about the aliens and about the brainwashing and, and the, you know, I didn't have the right words, but I, I told it in my words and, and my, to the credit of my wonderful parents, once again, they never defended themselves. They did nothing but listen, acknowledge, and believe me. That's if I could leave a message for another parent or a friend or a sibling or an aunt or an uncle or a school teacher. Listen, acknowledge, and believe. That's what a, that's what a victim needs. You don't blame them. You don't blame their parents. There's one perpetrator. That's who gets the blame. And now let's put them in jail, please. Okay, that's all. Wow, Jan. Jan, I mean, you're sharing such difficult and personal things with us. And and we know it's because you want to save someone from what you went through. Yeah, so, that's true. <laughs> so I thank you for that. And like I said, I felt blessed to meet you today. You know, you exercise this demon, you rebuild with your family, you heal, you have a successful career as an actress, you write a book, you go on a book, book tour, and who shows up again? There he is in the parking lot at the university where I'm talking to a thousand and women and their daughters who are students at the university and Bert's told is in the parking lot with a gun. He's found out that my mother has written our story, 
has published, self-published our book and story, uh, much smaller, not not as not as detailed as this book, our new book. But she's got it out there and we're using it at conferences and at at speaking engagements for police departments and mental health fairs and mother-daughter conferences. And we're just trying, we do Q&As and and not for pay. We've never, we've never made a dime doing any of this, but we are wanting to share because we want to help people know how common this sort of predator is and that it's someone you know. It's 2004, right? I want to give everyone an idea of where we are in the world. So now it's 2004. And honestly, for the first time, the story is coming out. And it's not all of it, but this part of it, which has never been part of the public discussion, was the sexual assault part. Yes, that's right. And I was interviewed by Diane Sawyer on Good Morning America because it ended up in USA Today as this woman who's telling their story, kidnapper after 35 years, shows up, blah, blah, blah. And I had been contacted him several other times uh, on the phone. Uh, he found where I lived when I was a college student. He found where I lived when I went and worked for Disney World as a as a entertainer. You know, I'm a singer, dancer, actress at Disney World. I do 12 different shows and he finds me there and his his ability, he just never let it go. So when you say obsessed, that's when you can really see this man was obsessed on some level that was beyond just being a pedophile. There was something, I don't know, because he went on to perp on other children. And he he wanted he wanted to set the record straight that what you and your he said, what you and your mother were saying were lies. And it's because of an altercation at Mm -hmm. one of these events that leads to his arrest. Right. Exactly. And so he's arrested and he's and he's found guilty two years later. Again, it takes all this time or maybe it was about a year and a half later. But in 2005, he he has to go to court. He's found guilty on three felony charges, two misdemeanor charges, nothing to do with raping little girls. But in these couple of years, because it had a little little minute of national attention, I found out that his two stepdaughters from the marriage he was in at the time had run away from home because he was molesting them. And and one of them reached out to us. And and all of a sudden, I'm finding out there's more, of course. But I didn't know I had a police report of a couple names. But now all of a sudden, I've got five or six people that he before me, after me. And so now you're really getting the full picture. And so at that point, when I was able to, you know, at least talk to Diane Sawyer for those six or seven minutes on Good Morning America in 2005 or four, and then he was convicted of those charges and was was going to be sentenced a month later, he actually killed himself before he could be sentenced. And um, but I at that point knew that I was going to be on a, a, a trajectory to try and wake up the world to known predators and to stop hiding your head in the sand, sweeping it under the rug, that it can happen in any socioeconomic standing. I have a friend of mine who said, well, I was talking to and and he gave me an example. He goes, why is this important in 2022, what you're doing? Because you know, we are on all on a dating app, you know, in these day, this day and age. And I find out when I move and I open up my dating app that my rapist lives 3,500 feet from me. He's like, that's why you are doing this right now today to help somebody like me tell my story and to do the things that I need to do to be healthy and happy and take back my life and not let that, um, that monster in my life run my life because that's the hope piece 
that you can do that. I'm living proof of that. And I want people to know they can do it and how to do it, which is why I started the Jam Robert Foundation, where we have an online community so that you can be supported in your survival and in your thriving as you heal and as you help others by telling your stories, communicating what helped you, also having professionals that come in and do special courses or online, you know, within your community, do events, a therapist, a legal advisor, a police officer, a so-and-so, you have access to some information that you wouldn't otherwise have, and you can help each other. And I'll be there too, to listen, to share, to take questions, to, to grapple with with the many facets and faces of this kind of abuse. So Jan, just a few things before we go. Um, We're going to play a clip of the um, Peacock series that we're hoping um, to get from NBC. And uh, we want to share that with everyone. What exactly is your relationship with Robert Birchtold? Well, he's... He's practically a member of the family. Good morning, Brobergs. Good morning, Brother B. Good morning, Jan. It's going to be a great day. Hey, who do you love the most? Brother B. Brother B. Brother B. Tell you the truth, a man like you, a father and a church leader, I've wanted to be friends with you from the moment I met you. Really? I almost feel like we're two sides of the same family. I look at you and Marianne, and sometimes I wish I had the kind of marriage you have. I think you really care about me, Broberg. Help me out, brother. No one thinks that their best friend is a monster, but he has all the hallmarks of a psychopathic personality. Happy birthday, Jan. Robert Birchtoll doesn't feel emotions the way that we do. He will lie and manipulate to get the only thing that he wants. Do you remember what I told you? I sure are special. Who is her father? Him or me? Gail? If you knew something, you would tell us, right? Your husband kidnapped her. Again! Where is Jan? Where is she? There's no telling what he is capable of. And then the other thing is, so Jan, I know you also do a podcast and you talk to survivors and clearly... In the time I've spent with you, you are a compassionate human being, and I think you make it safe for people who are frightened to open up to you, and and, and you're the first. I appreciate that. I, I hope that that is what they experience, because I don't want to re-traumatize people, but I, but I also want, I want as many details as they are able to give because I believe that it will help thousands of others who have those same details in their own life. And those same, you know, people experience a level of shame for different reasons. And when they, when the audience can hear what they're grappling with, and I can say to them, you aren't to blame. 
It's not your shame to bear. How do we help you heal from that so that you can move forward empowered and enlightened and lighter in your life so that you can have healthy, happy relationships? I want you to have trusting relationships in your life. You have to do that with discernment, with time, with a, with a measuring stick, with uh, caution. You have to look and see what's really there to see. And so all those things to me are what help people take those first steps and telling your story, even if it's just to one trusted friend that you set up the ground rules and say, will you promise to believe me? Will you promise not to blame me? Because those are the two key factors of someone opening up and sharing. Jan, one, I believe you. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you, Jan, for coming on. And thank you for sharing some very difficult things with us. And I'm sorry that this happened to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I hope that that the listeners um, will, you know, get our book. It's like a masterclass on groomers and manipulators. And, oh, dear You know, Lord. just get all the details. You can't get all the details in the series. We had to combine some things, but there isn't anything in it that isn't true. Mm-hmm. So watch the series, uh, get the book, come join our online community, lift your voice, know you're heard and believed. Thank you for believing me. You can't, you can't understand how much that, that helps me continue to move forward in what I'm hoping to leave behind as I, you know, go past this earth experience. I hope to leave it a better place. Thank you. I think you have. Thank you so much, Jan. You can find um, this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, we have other episodes. Uh, You can follow us on our YouTube channel, truecrimedaily.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This has been a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast.